Hello, and welcome to Story Infection Podcast number 26, the award-winning short stories On the Road to Yasu City and Dr. Griner's Day in Court, read by the author. The first story is about a broke, loveless guitar player walking through Mississippi hoping to find a gig when he comes upon a young, aloof waif of a girl who leads him through a day of shocking awareness of nature and love and life that changes the direction of his obscure future to determination to succeed. I'm Bill Coles, your host, so let's get started on the road to Yazoo City. My life at 21 was never in tune, like a D-string on an antique Gibson with a peg that wouldn't hold. And I'm walking up this two-lane side road about 10 miles west of Canton and north of Jackson, where I've just come from. I haven't seen a car in maybe an hour. The straps of my backpack digging into my shoulders, the sun burning my eyes because I lost my shades leaning over a riverbank to fill my water jug and dragging the guitar case just because it's too heavy to lift off the ground. Pure shit, but I gotta make it work. I'm flat broke. About a half mile down the road, I see this man on a bike pedaling like to die and holding straight on a faded center line. I flag him down and drop my backpack. He stops the bike, straddling the bar and breathing hard. Hey, mister, I say, you point me to Yazoo City? He points to his mouth and pulls out a little broken piece of slate and a piece of chalk from his pocket. Why, he writes in block letters on the slate. I guess it's a Mississippi kind of question. Someone asks you something, you ask them back something different. Then you spend a lot of time being sure you don't tell them what you know they want to know. Gig, I say. I'm not about to give him the scoop. Truth is, I was feeling so bad about this sweet girl, damn near a virgin, in Biloxi. I got drunk and missed a whole week of gigs with a band I'd been working with for two months. Manager left a note in the F-hole of my archtop acoustic. No job. No more. Try Yazoo. The guy's eyes light up when I say gig, as if he dreams of being me someday. He points straight ahead, smiling, and he draws an X on his slate and circles a right upper branch. Yazoo City, I ask again to be sure. He grins a grin with gaps and gives me a thumbs up. And before I get my stuff mounted again, he's back on the road, pedaling like mad now. I plod toward the crossroads about to drop. In Jackson, I'd missed a once-a-week bus to Yazoo City. Then I'd spent my last money on a meal of crackers and coke out of the vending machines. A woman who mops the toilets told me I could walk the distance in a few hours. There's some good information for you. I'm close to six hours walking now, and I ain't seen nothing, much less Yazoo City. Sun's about halfway down on the afternoon. Up ahead, I see a crossroad. I imagine this is what the mute guy had been drawing because there's a paved road going off to the right. I go about a half mile, and this little girl comes out of this cabin that's got a washing machine on the porch and a rusted Ford pickup, vintage mid-40s, jacked up on concrete blocks in the yard. She runs out to me. You want some gum? She says, taking a wad out of her mouth. I'll pass on that one, baby, I say. Where are you going? She's got a way of asking the tough questions up front. 
I ain't sure, I say, thinking in the broad sense. I have a direction, but no purpose. What's in that? She says, pointing to the guitar. Guitar, you know what a guitar is? She nodded once. Play. I'm zonked, so I put things down and stretch out on the roadside gravel. Two strings busted, baby. Don't play good. But I dig an A harp out from my back pocket. I'll play you a tune if you like. She doesn't say nothing. But I play her a tune. Oh, Susanna. She doesn't look real excited, so I play her. The saints go marching in. You like it, I say? She shrugs, which in my state I take as a real downer. Look, here's another. I sing with this one, Empty Bed Blues. And I'm about to cry thinking about my woman. When I'm finished, her eyes seem to have a little more interest. Hey, my gal left me, I explained to her. She was a waitress in Biloxi. Madeline's her name. Dear God, I love that girl. And I thought we would be together forever because she said, I love you too. But two weeks later, she said my life was unstable. That's exactly the word she used. And then she went to Atlanta to sort things out at her mother's house. Unstable. Can you imagine that? The little girl's still just staring at me. Me blow that thing? She asked. I'm thinking I don't want the spit or nothing. But she looks about to cry, so I explain, I'm sorry, honey. You got gum, and these harps is really personal. It's like a toothbrush. Well, that was something I hadn't seen in a few days, and I don't think she'd seen one for a while either. I'm thinking about putting my head back and sleeping a while, maybe the night, by the side of the road. It's not like traffic's a problem keeping me awake. She grabs the harmonica and starts running like the wind. It's my big river, 24 bucks new, and I take out after her. She runs into the house, and I run right behind her, mad as hell but admiring that she's willing to go for what she wants. Inside the shack is a big room with a stove and a refrigerator with the door open. Stuff inside the fridge looks hot. I hear moaning, and the little girl pokes her head out of the door of the room off to the right and stares at me. Now there's a yelling. I go into the room. God damn, there's a woman on the bed, on a bare mattress, with a pillow behind her head, and she's got her dress up and her knees up, and I'm looking straight into her private parts that are bulgy. I see this little football of hair, and then she stops yelling, and the hair goes back in. She's breathing hard, and all of a sudden I am too. She whispers, Give me some water in a bucket. Bring me the blanket from the couch. And the kid walks out, calm, like this happens every day. I'm ready to get back to my guitar and backpack and get moving. The woman begins a moan and then stops. Excuse me, ma'am, I say, thinking I might tell her her daughter, at least this girl stole my harmonica. Then she moans short and starts screaming, and I'm back to the door. I see the football hair growing larger. I wonder where the water is, but I'm not knowing at all what to do with it. At least the blanket seems a good idea to wrap the kid in if it gets here. It's coming, she screams. It's damn obvious it's coming, and I'm scared shitless. It's coming, she screams again. And I'm looking at this woman's parts and thinking about all those times I dreamed about being down in there and believing I'll never be thinking that again. 
It's coming, she screams again, and damn if it doesn't come in a flush of piss and blood and shit. It's half out. She's trying to sit up like a crunch and help it, but she falls back. I step up and try to grab its head, but it's slippery as snot. So I get it by the shoulders trying to figure out a way for a pull, and here it comes itself, sliding down the bed, and if I don't stop the little devil, it goes right into the iron pipe across the foot of the bed. The first thing I see, it's a boy, a soul brother, and I feel a little better about knowing it, and I touch him on the head. I've seen enough TV to know you hold him up, and I take one hand on each leg. I think I have to whack him on the bottom, but I don't have a free hand. Thank the dear Lord, he just cries on his own. I look down, and the woman is crying and smiling and mumbling, Thank you, Jesus, over and over, and she's bleeding now, so blood is running off the end of the bed in a little stream. The cord is still dangling, and she tells me to hand her the little guy. The girl comes in and puts the blanket on the woman's crotch. And after the woman's got the little boy, I'm thinking about how to get out of there. Get me the knife, Pearl, the woman says. Out goes the kid. Ain't here, she yells back. The woman sits and just chews on the cord until the end drops. And then she makes a little tie like ribbon candy. She moans again, but not for long. I'm sorry, ma'am, I say. She don't say nothing. It was, it was like an accident. She's still sound. I was just walking by on the road to Yazoo City. This ain't the road to Yazoo City, she manages to whisper. She moans again. Could you sit a spell? I don't answer. And after a minute, I pull up the only chair in the room. The baby is cradled on her chest. Stuff like wax all over it with flecks of blood on his closed eyes. But he seems content. The afterbirth comes after a mild moan. Then the blood pretty much stops. The little girl plops the water bucket down, but I don't move. The woman holds out her hand, and I take it. Her fingers soft and tired feeling. What about your husband, I ask? He don't cotton to no burthen, she whispers. I sit there maybe five minutes. You got a sweetheart, she asks. Had one, I say. She left me. I ain't feeling too good about women right now. Man needs a good woman, she whispers. I close my eyes and feel the woman's fingers weave into mine, holding tight. I'm afraid to let go. Afraid she might drift off somewhere like a dandelion seed, and I'd be alone. After another five minutes or so, I let go. The feel of her hand lingers on my skin in a way I won't forget. You get the doctor, she says. I don't know the doctor. Phone at the store, mile past the crossroads. Back up the road? Yeah, take the fort to Canton. Okay, I say. I walk out to the big room. On the sink is another piece of broken slate with some smudged writing on it. I go to pick it up, thinking it might have some information about the doctor, but the little girl grabs it. I gotta find the doctor, I say, pointing to the slate. She looks at me with a blank stare. She ain't the best communicator. I'm wondering about the harp, getting it back. 
But then I think, what the hell? Maybe it'll do her more good than it did me. Let the good times roll, I say to her, and give her a little wave. She doesn't move, and her stare is still fixed on me. I get back to the roadside, look around a little, but my backpack and guitar are gone. Every last thing I have in the world. Jesus, I think, angry as hell. Maybe I could track down the thief. That guitar is big bucks. I'll beat the hell out of him, I think. Then I'm thinking about my promise about the doctor, and I can't go back on a promise, so I start moving again. After a while, I'm surprised. Walking is a lot easier without lugging that damn guitar. I'm trying to be positive. I'm feeling lighter, like a balloon that broke away from being tied down. I'm thinking this is a sign, a new direction. Screw the gigs. Maybe I could try a career in fast food. Just as I'm about to make the turn toward the phone place, the guy on the bike pedals up and whips out his slate. He writes a question mark. He's got more schooling than I thought. He's wearing my Chicago Cubs baseball cap, too, the one I had in my backpack. He points up the road the way I came. He's grinning at me like he just slipped an ace into a losing hand of poker. It's a boy, I say. He jumps up and down a couple times, still straddling the bike, and waves his arms over his head. Good looking, too, I say. He wipes the slate with the heel of his hand. I see he's wearing two of my finger picks. Damn, for a second I want to strangle him. Okay, he writes. He cups his hands in front of his chest like breasts. I guess as a sign to tell me he's asking about the woman. You got to get the doctor, I tell him. But he starts shaking his head, pointing to his mouth. Okay, I say, okay. He wipes the slate clean again and writes, You okay? I'm feeling light on possessions, and I need to find some money for a burger and fries. I know I could sell my metronome that I still got in my pocket. Maybe sweet talk alone for a couple of days. I'm cool, I say. He puts the slate back in his pocket and slaps me on the shoulder like I'm his best friend. He makes the peace sign with his hand and looks worried. That's too much my buddy stuff for a guy that's just ripped off my guitar. I had the thought to mangle him on the spot. But I can't stop seeing in my mind that his woman and my Madeline all at once. Maybe he's doing it for his family. So I slap him on the back friendly. I like your groove, I say, with more meaning than I thought I had in me. He gets ready to crank up his bike. Hey, my man, I say, pointing down the road. Is that the way to Atlanta? He writes another question mark on his slate with Yazoo after it. My woman in Atlanta, I say. He points the other way toward Atlanta. His grin is so wide, I can see where his back teeth are missing. The second story is Dr. Griner's day in court. Three children are on their way with their aunt, their mother's sister, to attend the arraignment of their father, who is charged with killing the mother. The oldest child, a girl, steps up amidst the disarray, fear, and confusion of the group to grasp control of the family's actions and future. 
Dr. Griner's Day in Court by William H. Coles. My Auntie Caroline drove my dead mother's plum red van on the way to the courthouse. Aaron, my older brother by two years, but not quite as tall as me, sat unstrapped on the passenger side in what my mother used to call the death seat. Patsy, my seven-year-old younger sister, and I were in the back. We were dressed up to go to Dad's arraignment, but no one was exactly clear on what an arraignment was, except maybe Auntie. The van was so warm. Auntie had set the temperature knob in the red. We didn't know about our dad, and I was afraid to talk about him or anything until I started sweating. "'It's hot back here, Auntie,' I said. "'Shut your face,' Aaron snapped. I wish the death seat would do its job. I don't want half moons under my armpits, I said. It was a silk blouse my mother had given me. That's not from the heat, Aaron said. What is it then? It's from being so friggin' screwed up, Aaron said. Without Auntie around, he would have used the F word. Auntie was my dead mother's younger sister, and she was taking care of us this month. This was her second day. The family members drew straws to assign responsibility for us. No one was eager to just take on three orphans like a new family. Patsy and I missed Mom, but having Auntie in the house suited Aaron just fine. He was crazy for her. He followed her around like a puppy dog, and his eyes surged up and down her body as if her clothes had dropped off. Before the arrest, Auntie and Dad jogged together, and when they returned, she would shower and dress in the guest room and Aaron would hang around outside, as if he were there by accident, for a glimpse, I knew, of her nude through a partially open door. After Auntie caught on and shut the door, I saw Aaron on his knees looking through the keyhole. He said to shut up or he'd kill me. Aaron talked back to Auntie now, but he still liked her. He was just messed up because she acted like a parent now. He would have liked to screw her. Believe me, it would have been his first time although he said he dig girls all the time. No way, Jose. I'll turn down the heat, Sandy, Auntie said. It's hard to tell how hot it is in the back from up here. We had at least an hour before we got to the courthouse. My sister, who saw Auntie's adjustment with the heat knobs as a victory for us in the back seat, stuck out her tongue at the back of my brother's head. She was still young enough to do that. I would have given him the bird, but Auntie had a clear view of me in the rear-view mirror. I hated my brother. There was talk of him going away to school again. I prayed that some place would accept him, but none did. I knew him for the devil he was, and every school discovered it sooner or later. He'd been twice expelled from preppy schools and now had to go back to public school. Aaron hated public school. He hated me, too. Aaron was furious that Auntie made him go to court. Aaron shouted and told her to mind her own goddamn business. But Auntie was like Mother, steely with a will. And she stared Aaron down and told him to get dressed, that our father needed us, and she was not going to be a part of his son not being there. Aaron said it was his last time. She didn't answer, but there was a firestorm in her blue eyes that were usually glacier cold. Next to me, Patsy leaned forward, straining against the seatbelt to be heard. Do you think Daddy did it? Patsy piped up with innocence, but there was nothing innocent about Patsy. She could be twice her age if you measured craftiness. Aaron and I were dead silent. I wondered what Auntie Caroline thought about Dad. They were always best friends. Did she blame him for Mom's murder? 
Everyone on TV news acted as if he were guilty. Auntie Caroline waited. She made an extra fuss turning left against traffic, but I could tell she was finding her words. Of course your father's innocent. How could you believe anything else, she said. That's exactly what the paper said about us. We had to believe. I saved the stories in an oversized envelope. Some had pictures of us, old and new, with lines underneath like children of the deceased or family of the local doctor charged with wife's murder. The posed studio picture of mom was taken before we were born. I don't think she looked pretty even then. More determined and intense, with a round face, cocker spaniel eyes, and light reddish hair. I would look like her, not gorgeous like Auntie Caroline. Has it been hard at school? Auntie asked to all of us and none of us. No, said Aaron. Aaron's friends were geeky, pimple-assed weirdos. They probably thought it was cool to have a dad arrested for the murder of his wife. What about you, Sandy? Oh, they've been just great, I said. But the kids my age shunned me from the day Dad got arrested, as if I had clap or AIDS. I went back to school for the first time a week after Dad was arrested. Girls who were my best friends suddenly wore these frumpy frowns on their faces and ran into the restroom to avoid me. Groups of kids I used to hang out with would split up like exploding stars when I approached. I said, screw it. It wasn't my fault. My dad was not guilty. I don't need you fartheads anyway. They asked me what it was like to be famous, said Patsy. What did you say? Auntie Caroline said. I don't know, Patsy said. Patsy was acting like a four-year-old to make Auntie think she didn't have a purpose. But Patsy wanted to know what Auntie thought. Auntie merged the van into the fast lane. Mom called Patsy a mistake. I was never sure whose mistake Patsy was, mother, father, or God's. Maybe that's why Mom was always lecturing me about safe sex. I hadn't done it, but I think Mom thought I did. She called me a slut once and said nice girls didn't pierce their navels. I had wanted to, but she wouldn't let me. Who killed Mama? Patsy asked. Someone in the park... Auntie said. We rode in silence. Why do they think Dad did it? Patsy finally asked. Auntie didn't answer. So Aaron said, Don't be stupid, Patsy. They don't know Dad like we do. He's too smart to be guilty. If he were going to hammer Mom to death, he wouldn't stab her with a knife, too. That's psycho stuff. Patsy said, Ooh. Auntie said, Aaron... I didn't like Aaron's talk, either. They found the hammer in the garage, Patsy said. I saw the picture. I was a little pissed at Patsy, who had been reading my clipping collection and was acting like she knew it all. The papers say it's only circumstantial evidence, Aaron said. What does that mean? Patsy asked. No witnesses, no confession. I read the columns over and over. This week's Newsweek and Time had pictures of Dad in an orange prison jumpsuit holding his handcuffed arms up to hide his face. Dad was a famous surgeon. He lectured and taught other doctors. He had a clamp named after him. Will Daddy come home today? Patsy asked. He might if the judge sets a reasonable bail, said Auntie. Would you stay if Dad came home? I asked. Of course I'd help, Sandy, Auntie said without a pause. Are we almost there? Patsy whined. 
No, dear, just a few more minutes. Will we sit with Daddy? Don't be stupid, Aaron said again. No, we'll be far away, Auntie said. But your dad will be able to see you. Will he go to the electric chair? Patsy said. I acted as if the thought had never crossed my mind. They don't fry people anymore, Aaron said, out of control as he usually was, even when Mom was alive. Oh, yeah? Then what do they do? Patsy asked. They stick you with a needle and shove drugs in you. I looked at Auntie Caroline in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were wet. But Auntie was tough and I didn't expect tears. None came. Auntie Caroline decided it was time for a bathroom break, so we pulled off at an Exxon service plaza. Aaron got the men's room key. The lock on the ladies' room had been torn out of the door, where there was just now a hole. Auntie and I waited outside the ladies' room while Patsy went inside. Auntie whispered, "'You're going to have to be strong, Sandy.' "'I know,' I said. I was uncomfortable. I didn't choose to be here with Auntie or with anyone in my family.' Aaron can't do it, and Patsy's too little, she said. Okay, I said, okay. What did she expect me to do? I couldn't make Mom alive. I couldn't get Dad out of jail. We all miss your mother, Auntie said. But there were months when Auntie and Mom wouldn't speak to each other. Patsy came out and Auntie went in. Patsy and I walked to the van alone. I wish I didn't have to go, Patsy said. Dad needs us, I said. Auntie isn't like she used to be. Why, I asked. Not as nice, Patsy said. I saw Auntie had come out and she bought pops at a dispenser. Aaron was still inside, probably playing with himself. We finally got back on the road and we rode in silence again. It seemed like hours. I was surprised when Aaron spoke up. Were you there when Mom was killed? He asked Auntie. Of course not. Why are you asking? Your car was out front of the house, he said. He would know. He would have looked for any opportunity to get a glimpse of Auntie's legs and running shorts. I was jogging, Auntie said. You were in the woods when Mom was killed. It was like an observation, not a question, not an accusation either. But even Patsy held her breath. I don't know when Martha was killed. Auntie said slowly, emphasizing the words as if she were struggling to remember the details. Aaron wanted Auntie to tell the truth. He didn't want suspicions to spoil his fantasy life with Auntie. Rusty and me saw Mom and Dad leave together that morning, said Patsy. Rusty was our jury-eyed cocker spaniel. We all sank into silence. It's not a big woods, Aaron said. I had thought about these things, too. And now we were on our way to sit in public and watch my dad. We were all more nervous than I thought. Auntie kept her eyes on the road. It's a lot of acres, she said. You can jog and never see anyone you know. I watched Auntie in the mirror. Her look was a rock. Could I ever be as strong as she was? It must have been terrible, Auntie said. She wouldn't have died right away. It would have taken a lot of blows, said Mr. Know-it-all, in his I'm-so-important mood now. His information came from watching horror films on video. Mom would have known who it was. That's horrible, Auntie said. I think she met Aaron, who thought words could make you brave. 
We were silent again. Aaron slumped. We didn't know what Auntie believed. I admired Auntie. She had opinions and stood up for herself as a woman, just the way I want to when I get out of school. She was usually good to all of us. She wouldn't hurt Mom. I had convinced myself of that from the very beginning. I heard on TV that a lot of murderers are family, said Patsy. She'd been thinking about this. No one, not even Aaron, had anything to say about that. Dad wouldn't kill anyone, I said, but I was surprised. It just came out. I hadn't thought about saying it before. Of course not, said Auntie. Her voice rang with clarity, and with those three words we became a team all of a sudden. We seemed together for Dad on this. Our van was filled with purpose. As we got near the courthouse, we were a little army for Dad. All of us knew we had a role, even though none of us was really sure what exactly that role was. In her amazing way, I thought Auntie had taken a few stray parts and made us whole. Well, this was my first time in this or any courtroom. I was amazed at how much wood there was. They must have cut down an entire force for justice. There were wooden benches. The walls had wooden panels. The judge and jury boxes were polished wood, too, although the chair seats were upholstered in red leather. I believe we should not sacrifice one tree for this court, or any court for that matter. The fluorescent lights on the ceiling glared so intently they erased the shadows on faces. The bailiff, the court recorder, and judge had an eerie sameness as if they were wearing Halloween masks. We sat in the third row on the left side facing the judge. Aaron made sure he sat next to Auntie Caroline, probably wanting to feel a grab of her bottom. His fantasies clouded any hope of decency. But Auntie stood up and repositioned us like checkers on a board. Aaron, me, Patsy, and Auntie. Ha! She was as far away from Aaron as possible. She had not forgotten our purpose. We looked like fans at a football game. In his pants pocket, Aaron carried Clearasil for his acne. He used it 15, maybe 20 times a day. He had gotten it out now, mashing the tube for a little cream. The tube was as empty as you could get without really being empty. The stuff was not working, and I thought he wasted his money. But pimples were his life. His face was splotchy with red and pink mounds. The skin on his back where he couldn't reach looked like the surface of Mars. His thumb and forefinger were as strong as pliers from squeezing blackhead craters. Aaron was sloppy, too. His glasses slid down his pug nose. He was slack on brushing his teeth and the crooked little devils were getting yellow. Aaron thought yellow was cool. He wanted to be a runaway to New York or Seattle, but that passed. A phase of junior high. He had tried drugs, I'd seen him, but I don't think he was addicted. I thought it was more to go against Mom. Dad's case came up. The bailiff's voice echoed. Henry, Gerhardt, Greiner. After preliminary speeches and lawyers standing and saying, Yes, Your Honor, Dad pled not guilty. His voice was easily heard, but far from its usual loud, do-it-or-else tone. After more discussion, the lawyer argued for release with no bail. Auntie leaned forward. I thought to hear better, although the lawyer's voice seemed more than loud enough to me. The lawyer said Dad's medical service to the community was beyond equal. Dad was magnanimous, always caring for others. The lawyer said the weaknesses of the prosecutor's case were obvious. The DNA evidence was easily explained. Dad had a nosebleed that morning, and it got on Mom's dress. Finally, he pointed out all of Dad's family, us and friends, 
all his support. Would any man leave, he said. I barely listened to this, but Aaron listened with the intensity of looking at MTV with no sound. The judge did not look impressed by Dad's achievements. She denied bail. Auntie Caroline gasped, as did most of the other hundred or so people in the courtroom. He lied, Aaron said under his breath to me. What? I said. Tell me. No, he lied. Aaron, I said, but I realized he was shaking with silent sobs. The nosebleed. What is it? said Auntie from the end of our line. Aaron's crying, Patsy discovered, happy to announce Aaron's baby side to the world. She thought he was crying about bail. I knew better. Be quiet, I said to Patsy. I watched Dad. I searched for a brief glance as the lawyer droned on. Not one look. Dad was between two guards who held him by the arms. He could have looked at us. Easily. I willed him to do it, to make it all right. But he did not look. Had he forgotten we were there? Impossible. Aaron held his sobs, but tears trickled down his face. He didn't have a nosebleed, he said. As the judge closed the proceedings, Dad stared between his shackled feet. Aaron curled his upper body on the wooden bench like a possum in danger. I knew he'd been waiting for Dad to look, too. Although Aaron's legs hung down now, his feet were not solidly on the floor. He was a mound of broken bones in a loose skin sack. I still hated him, but he knew something terrible, and for the first time ever, I wanted to touch and comfort him the way Mom did to me when we were small and happy. To tell him Dad was innocent, not to worry. Dad would be home some day. Oh, my goodness. I was struck by how crazy that was, how childish. I was 14. Mother wanted me to start taking the pill. Why would I say totally ridiculous things to my brother? He got on my nerves, but he was not an idiot. Aaron's still crying, Patsy said again quietly. Let him be, I said to Patsy. Patsy stared at me with an odd look I had never seen before. Something in my voice? She turned away and didn't move. Grow up, I said. Auntie leaned over Patsy toward Aaron and me. Aaron, she said, are you okay? Leave him alone, I said. Auntie backed away with a puzzled look, but she didn't interfere. Finally, I reached over and touched Aaron's arm just for a second. It was for the right reason. I was there. He didn't pull away, and he glanced ever so briefly at me. I saw the stress in his eyes, shrunken by the lenses of his glasses. Then fear possessed him. I took his trembling hand. He was still staring at the closed door where Dad had been led from the courtroom. We'll get through this, I said. These stories and more than 35 others can be enjoyed free online, as well as five novels at storyandliteraryfiction.com, a website dedicated to providing resources for fiction writers, resources that include essays, interviews, a blog, a newsletter, a workshop, and tutorial, and much, much more. Hey, thanks for listening, and goodbye. This podcast 
is a production of StoryInLiteraryFiction.com.